Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. If you only fish in half the pond, how do you know that you've got the best talent? The statistics, you know, would demand a different outcome. There is such a well-educated cohort of women who enter the workforce and then over time, for various reasons, either drop out because the workplace just was not flexible enough to accommodate them or friendly enough or they became invisible Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking to Alana Rubin about diversity and culture. First, let me tell you about Alana. Alana is on the boards of Afterpay Limited, Telstra Limited, Slater and Gordon Limited and several unlisted and government entities. She's previously been on the boards of Australian Super, Mervac, Members Equity Bank, WorkSafe and the Transport Accident Commission. Alana started her career in social policy and industrial relations at the ACTU before moving to superannuation, where she was the investment director for a large industry super fund. She then moved into non-executive director roles, working across a wide range of sectors. She is a strong believer in organisations with purpose and in social licence to operate. Her interests include social policy, social equity, travel and cinema, two things that we're not able to do right at the moment. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Alana. Thank you very much and thank you for inviting me. It is fabulous to have you here and I should say I don't always date my podcasts but at the moment given we are in the middle of a global pandemic, we are recording this at the end of July when unfortunately you're not able to do much travel or cinema. Are you doing home cinema instead? We certainly are and I thank our lucky stars that we have streaming services because (laughs) we have a movie night most nights because there's not much else to do. (laughs) So, you know, we've watched a wide range of movies and TV shows and docos and really whenever I see or speak to any friend, I say at the end, and what are you watching? 
and text me if they're good. Yes, we all need those shared lists about movies we need to see. (laughs) That's right. And there's been some fabulous things that I've watched and really interesting things about change and cultures of silence. I watched fabulous doco on Bobby Kennedy and just his passion for change. I watched a doco on Athlete A, which is the story of a doctor that worked with the American Olympic team who sexually abused girls over a long period of time. But because the team was winning, no one really picked it up um, and acted on what was sort of known. And that was just amazing. I think there's Michael Jordan's Last Dance, which just about an incredibly competitive person, but one who learnt the importance of a team rather than being just a lone superstar. Mm-hmm. And then I've watched some amazing, you know, sort of political dramas and BBC cop shows and <laughs> just a wide range, eclectic. Fantastic. Well, that is why. One of the small upsides to the time that we are living through at the moment, that uh, if you can't get out to the cinemas to see it, at least you're able to see things in at, at the home cinema. So, Alana, before we talk about diversity and culture and a bit about your journey to and in the boardroom, I would love to just firstly dig a little bit deeper about you. Can you tell us a story about young Alana that tells us a bit about how you got to where you are today? Well, young Alana was, you know, in hindsight, very fortunate to have the family context that I grew up in. My parents were from Eastern Europe and with a couple of stops settled in Australia. But they were really social activists and active politically. They had a strong sense of social justice and they had a keen belief that you needed to participate to advance change. Mm -hmm. And as a young Alana, I think there were times that I just wanted to fit into my peer group and none of their parents sort of yelled at the TV during the TV news as my father used to do. In fact, their parents didn't really watch the news and went through a stage that I wish my parents were a lot less vocal about some of these things But as I grew older, I really appreciated the lessons that they taught me, which was about a belief in strong communities and that we're all far better off, not just economically, but socially, when we are part of a strong community. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated the lesson that they taught me around if you believe in change and you want change, you can't wait for someone else, that everybody has a role to play. And some people will be leaders, amass a huge following, but everybody through their actions has a role to play in setting an example and advocating for the change that they want. Mm. So that was sort of the context of me being interested in social reform and social change. I went through university and this will age me dramatically when it was still free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I stayed there and, you know, I was lucky enough I did a honours year for my BA and then I did an MA. And my first job was in 
the Commonwealth Government in their graduate program, which I did sort of for a year and a bit. And then I went to the ACTU. And that was just before or coincided with the election of the Hawke-Keating government, where the ACT played a very significant role in economic and social policy reform. Mm -hmm. And together with business, participated with government. So it was very much a tripartite model of policy development. And that was just a fabulous time. Anyone who was interested in social policy or change or, you know, addressing past barriers or inequities, it was a fabulous time. And it was led by Bill Kelty, who, irrespective of people's politics, you know, is almost universally regarded as a brilliant strategist and leader and played a huge role in reforming you know, workplaces and providing the basis for what then became decades of productivity growth. Mm. And I went there, you know, with a significant lack of confidence and bewilderment how I could get into an organisation like that. Everybody was incredibly confident and it was a very flat organisation. There wasn't a hierarchy at all. Mm. But I was just so fortunate to work for two people at the ACT, most influential being Bill, who gave you, in a sense, the status of the ACTU when you went into meetings. And they were very generous about developing their staff and particularly brave about putting women in senior roles. Mm. And Bill... We wouldn't use the word then, but in today's word was a very active sponsor for me. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there were many, quite too many occasions actually to count that he would say, I'm doing something, I can't do it, you do it. And you would walk, I would walk into a room and people would sort of ask me if I was Bill's new secretary and, you know, was I going to tell them that he was running late? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd be the only female in this room of very corporate men and I'd sort of have to look up to them because they're all taller than me mm. and say no it's me no, I'm <laughs> and so yeah. um, there were sort of many times that no matter what you felt internally you actually had the authority of the organization you were standing on the shoulders mm. in a sense of the organization and that I found really helpful to just keep working through somewhat intimidating circumstances and meetings in order to represent the people that I was supposed to represent as well as I could. And I felt that responsibility very keenly, Mm. but luckily was able to learn as I went with the support of Bill and others. That's a very long-winded way of saying where I am. So that was, and from there, I actually went into superannuation because Mm. I was very interested in industrial law and I was doing a lot of advocacy at that time. And it was just the start of the 3% superannuation contribution. Mm. And Bill thought that I should become more involved in superannuation, both in terms of policy, but also as a trustee. And I wanted to do law. And I remember having this discussion with him where I said to him, I don't want to be an accountant, you know, and stormed out of the room. But 
it was a lesson because I actually trusted him Mm. and he saw something in me that I didn't see. He saw that I have a genuine interest in reform and he could see I could use that in a way where I can lend capital markets and better outcomes for investors, individual, ordinary Australians. Something that I would have never seen myself, but I trusted him and went and did some further studies in finance and investment. And that put me in superannuation. And I have to say it was, if there is ever a sliding door moment for me, it was that discussion because I can't tell you how much I loved working in super and being part of a movement where they were taking traditional investment models and doing it better. The entire sort of profit for member concept, you know, helping develop new asset classes, being very early into new areas. And it subsequently then opened up another career for me in non-executive directorships. Mm. Without that conversation with Bill, if I had not trusted him and not been game to do something different, I would have done a postgrad in law and I would have had an entirely different career. Might have been interesting, but I don't think it would have been as interesting or as broad. And so the lesson for me from that and one that I encourage, particularly for women, mm. is seek out a sponsor because when they're at their best, they will see something in you that you don't see yourself and will help you navigate through that. And be open for ideas and opportunities, even though they may not be what you think you want at the time. Mm-hmm. It certainly served me incredibly well. And I think I've just been incredibly unfortunate to have had those opportunities. Mm. And it sounds like, in a way, even though you didn't seek it out, he sought you out and you were open to that in a way. And having that having that person to sponsor, mentor, whatever it may be, incredibly valuable. And particularly, you know, I'm thinking you've come through the trade union movement and I should say for those that are potentially listening either within or outside Australia, the ACTU is the Australian Council of Trade Unions, so the peak trade union body in Australia. And for you, having come through both the union movement into superannuation and then and now also in a number of financial services organisations, not all known for their gender equality or diversity. So now in your roles around a non-executive director in a number of those organisations, what are some of the lessons that as a director you are now applying around that diversity and creating that culture of diversity in those organisations? I am absolutely passionate about diversity and it's in its broader sense so not just women but more broadly and our corporations whether they be private sector public sector not-for-profit would all be better if they reflected more of our community it used to frustrate the life out of me when I was less patient than I am now when organizations used to say you know we have the top talent we have recruited the best people and I'd look around the room and they were all men Mm. and if you only fish in half the pond how do you know that you've got the best talent 
the statistics, you know, would demand a different outcome. You know, women go through high school in equal numbers, we enter university in equal numbers, we graduate generally in equal numbers. In some areas, we actually dominate in others, like science, we're a bit lower. But there is such a well-educated cohort of women who enter the workforce and then over time, for various reasons, either drop out because the workplace just was not flexible enough to accommodate them or friendly enough, mm. or they became invisible. And if you've got that talent that's, you know, a society we've invested in that somehow doesn't show up in leadership roles, you have to think that there is something wrong in organisations broadly rather than just a single organisation. There's something systemically wrong in how we look at talent mm. and how we recruit. So I just think diversity is critical to ensure that we use all the talent that we have, that we deliver better outcomes. And also just in terms of social equity, that we don't exclude people simply on how they look or the postcodes that they were born in or they went to the wrong schools, all of those things. So, mm. you know, I have a very strong belief in diversity. Pleasing to say that strong belief is supported by a library of sound research, whether it's from Morgan Stanley or Credit Suisse or McKinsey or Bain, reported in the Harvard Business Review. These are not organisations that you would think are radical in any way, shape or form. They are traditional organisations, but even there, they recognise that the research shows clearly there are better organisational outcomes where we capture all the talent available, we have deeper discussions, we avoid groupthink, and hence we have better outcomes. Hello, it's Helia. Just popping in here to say another Take On Board event is coming up soon. On the 29th of September, we'll be hearing from Danielle Jacobs about their hot-off-the-press research from her and others in Wellbeing Lab. She'll take us through the insights from a survey of more than 1,500 Australian workers on how they're coping during COVID times and how their employers and leaders, and that includes us on boards, can best support them both now and into the future. Join us for an interactive, evidence-based, thought-provoking discussion, custom-created to help boards understand and proactively and efficiently manage workplace wellbeing in a rapidly changing COVID environment. Super early bird tickets until the 15th of September. Link in the show notes or get in touch if you want a book. I look forward to seeing you there and to facilitating more knowledge and relationships amongst the Take On Board community. Given your involvement in superannuation and in financial services and around this supporting diversity, there has been a bit of talk recently about almost, I guess, shareholder activism and shareholder activism supporting, or if that's the right word, encouraging, whatever it may be, demanding more equality and diversity on boards. What's what's your view about that and about shareholders um, having a bit more of an active stance there? I think shareholders have been incredibly patient. I think shareholders put their risk capital on the table and they have every right to ensure that the companies are working as hard as they can for a long-term return. 
and some things in business, you know, are really hard and there's a risk involved and you have to innovate, but they're not to extract the value that can easily be achieved from diversity and inclusion mm. is an absolute missed opportunity. And so I think shareholders have been incredibly patient by sitting back and saying to companies, you know, the research is there, you know, you can add value by ensuring you've got diversity and inclusion. We've allowed you to do it, you know, in your own way over time, but it's taking so long. And for those that are achieving it, we can see the results. For those that are laggards, we need to push you forward. What's the board's role in encouraging diversity, in establishing a good culture? What can boards do to really make sure these are the sorts of organisations that we're leading? So I think boards are a key input into setting the tone and the culture of an organisation. We have a very important role of selecting the CEO and supporting him or her and clearly having someone whose values align with understanding those diversity and inclusion dynamics are important. I also believe that the board can demonstrate through its own composition a belief in diversity and inclusion, how it walks the talk and how it interacts with, you know, the executive team and its staff will also reinforce either a positive belief in diversity and inclusion or not. And I do emphasise the inclusion part because I have seen organisations who have made started to make some inroads into diversity but have forgotten that there's so many other signals in an organisation around who's in the A-team, who's not, how we treat people who may need to leave at five o'clock rather than seven o'clock because they've got home responsibilities, even though they then pick up work, you know, after the kids go to sleep. There are so many ways of either promoting an inclusive culture or not. And until we get 50-50 equal representation in the workplace, where then I think, you know, simply by critical numbers, inclusion will be part of DNA. We actually have to be as mindful of inclusion as we do of diversity. It's like, you know, in organisations, I ask for the team that's worked on a project to come in and present. Mm. And that's not just for the board to see the depth of talent in the organisation, see emerging talent, but it's also to give people lower down in the organisation exposure to the board. I have sat through a number of presentations where there are more junior female staff who've done a lot of the grunt work, who are never given, you know, either the five minutes to talk about what they contributed to the project because the team leader hasn't thought enough about giving that to them so you know that's a discussion that the board can have afterwards and say you know our expectation is that you know everybody who worked on the project but particularly 
the younger women, the younger men can just have five minutes to talk about their contribution. What a fabulous thing to do in front of a board. Those are ways that I think the board can walk the talk, small but meaningful steps. Yeah, that is such a practical tip for boards to take on just in terms of who's presenting to them and broadening that out to give exposure. It's a, yeah, it's a beautiful tip. Earlier this year, there was a media report about your role, both as the a director of members' equity and also your role at Afterpay, raising issues around conflict of interest. I'm just wondering if you can touch on that for us today and about the issue at hand and also the impact there with you. Thank you. And there was an article that suggested I had a conflict of interest because members' equity had written down and stopped a credit card project. What the article didn't do was put the whole story. And part of that story was, you know, that members' equity was continuing to develop their credit card program, but on an old platform rather than the new platform. But it was a very biting article Mm. about me And I felt it very acutely because I am very conscious about good governance. I'm very conscious about conflicts. And the assertion that I wasn't adhering to my good governance principles was also a slight on the rest of the members' equity board because, you know, they clearly hadn't addressed an issue that this journalist thought should be addressed. The facts were quite different to what was reported. But what came afterwards I thought was really interesting for me, and it certainly has been the experience of a number of senior women, that because we are still not as significant as we should be in number, there is this thing that a perceived failure Mm. or perceived misstep or perceived error weighs far more heavily on women than men. Men seem to go from one corporate mishap to another and it's just seen as part of a career where for women it can often stop their careers. Mm. And my circumstance, I was very lucky it didn't. And, you know, I've continued at Afterpay and, I've, you know, the board requested that I chair, so that was great. But I look at some of my female colleagues who have paid a very heavy price Mm -hmm. for a perceived failure. And it goes back to this concept that we assume men are competent. You know, they've always been in leadership roles ever since, you know, we were born. But women have to prove their competency. And that is a very different paradigm. And it's almost like if we give women the benefit of the doubt that they're competent and something untoward or they make a mistake, as I have to say, everybody does in their career from time to time, Mm. suddenly, you know, collectively we feel cheated. It's like we thought you were good, but now you're not. And so we withdraw any support. And you can track a number of very senior women who have had fabulous careers until one thing happened and then the opportunities dried out. Mm. Whereas you look at males who have had similar problems 
who continue on it because they're men and they've always been competent. It was just an issue. Yeah. And I think the price that women pay is very different. And I want to highlight that because it's twofold. One is we have to stop treating the genders differently. And second, it's really important that it doesn't put off young women. So I look and talk to many young women who feel that some roles are just too risky. And it's not because the business itself is risky, but it's high profile, it's a disruptor, it's very fast, it's in a sector that's changing rapidly, all of those things. And they're just reluctant about the impact of what happens if something goes wrong on the rest of my career. Mm-hmm. That is such an unfair question that they have to manage because it has a different price to their male colleagues and it means that they're missing out on fabulous opportunities, fabulous learning opportunities, fabulous ways for them to make a contribution to companies mm-hmm. because we still treat women and men differently mm. when things get tough. This prompts for me thinking about AMP and uh, I think I've got this right, that the, all the women on the AMP board stepped down after Absolutely. the impacts of the Royal Commission and none of the men did. Absolutely. And yeah. if you have a look at those women, the chair paid a significant price mm. um, in a way that her counterparts didn't. Yeah. And the other female directors, you know, similarly have been far more low-key afterwards. And yet, you know, the men didn't. And it's interesting when you have a look at the issue at the moment with AMP Capital and the appointment of their new CIO or CEO for AMP Capital, that there is still, you know, without commenting on the individual, because I don't know, yep. you know, his story at all. The response from the women in AMP says mm. there is something still within the culture that hasn't been addressed. Oh, Alana, we could talk for ages, I think. Um, but uh, I know you're on a schedule. So, and I, you know, aim for about half an hour for these. You know, it's the right dog walking period for people to be able to listen to it whilst they're taking the dogs out. So, tell me what. What are the main points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? I'd like to encourage women to follow the things that they're passionate about. Mm. So, you know, I love things with purpose. That's what organisations that I like to be involved with. We're lucky enough, you know, the cohort that we are to make choices about our employment. We have choices. We're not in a production line or in a manufacturing plant, we have choices. If you've got a choice, make sure that you work with organisations and people that reflect your values. And the other thing I'd like to encourage women to do is just to promote change. We all have a role in promoting change and no matter what you do and what level you are in an organisation or what platform you have, we won't get the sort of environment or society that we want unless we advocate and act for change Mm. each in our own way and so I would certainly encourage everyone but particularly women to do that. And is there a resource that you would like to share with the Take On Board community? You actually asked me that and 
I read Michelle Obama's book and clearly a woman who has been driven by a, a strong sense of social justice and a strong belief in participating for change. So, you know, I love that. And just a small anecdote that just shocked me. In the book, she says that until they came into the White House, there had never been a prominent art piece by an Afro-American artist hanging in the collection. Oh, my goodness. And so they changed that. And you think that is the thing, just those small steps are steps of recognition and respect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the words we say, the actions all matter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just think a young emerging Afro-American artist can now look and say, I can be hung in the White House. Yes. Where a decade before, yes. you know, you can't be what you can't see. Exactly the words I was thinking. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for your time today, Alana, and sharing your wisdom with us. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. Hi there, it's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation. 